We're currently in a sermon series um, on Jonah, and we're all familiar with Jonah, the story of Jonah, Jonah and the big fish, and in studying through the book of Jonah this last semester at school, one of the things that came to mind is how Jonah's kind of an anti-hero. He does the things that we are told not to do. He's uh, Rebelling against God, we see in Jonah 1 that he rebels against God when God calls him to preach to Nineveh. And then we see in chapter 2 where he demonstrates characteristics of self-righteousness. And that's, that's what we are going to address tonight. Um, tonight our uh, section of scripture will be Jonah 2, verses 1 to 10. However, I'm not going to start there. If you would, please open your Bibles to Luke 18. And verse 9, Luke 18 and verse 9. And the reason I'm starting here is this is where we see Jesus speaking to those who trusted in their good works and self-righteousness to enter the kingdom of God. It's a safe assumption Jesus was addressing the Pharisees as he had spoken to them in previous verses, starting in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Now, when he addresses those, beginning with verse 9, he's addressing those individuals who display unique and classic pharisaical attitudes, in particular, the attitude of pride. So if you would read with me, starting with verse 9, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable, two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here Jesus provides us an example of a self-righteous prayer. God hates pride. Pride is a sin. We see in Proverbs 21 verse 4, a haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. Pride defiles the proud person. Jesus points this out in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, where we read, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. Pride hardens the mind. When Daniel was called to read the writing on the wall for King Belshazzar, son of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel points out the king, he points out to the king the effect pride had on his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel said, When his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. God disciplined and humbled the king, who later repented in faith and was restored to his throne. Jonah also was self-righteous and proud. Like Nebuchadnezzar, God disciplined and humbled Jonah. Before we look at Jonah's self-righteous attitude, I'd like to review last week's message, Jonah the Disobedient Prophet. The narrative began with Jonah in chapter 1. God called him to rise up and preach against Nineveh. Instead, Jonah rose up and fled in the opposite direction, on a ship. When God sent a storm upon the ship, Jonah went to sleep, 
awaiting the ship to break up while the sailors frantically fought to save it. After the captain yelled to Jonah to get up and pray with the sailors for deliverance, Jonah confessed his behavior, but not his sin against God. When he realized Jonah was the reason for the storm, he advised them to throw him overboard, in effect, committing assisted suicide rather than obeying God and preaching the hated Gentilic Assyrians. We'd seen throughout this narrative that Jonah's disobedience went from bad to worse. But God mercifully calmed the storm, leading the pagan sailors to worship and make sacrifices to him. God also graciously sent a fish to swallow Jonah, miraculously rescuing him and saving his life. This brings us to tonight's passage, Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish, Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. The title of this evening message is Jonah, the self-righteous prophet. Before we read, let's just bow our heads quickly in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this truth. We ask that you would help us um, hear your word, that you would open our ears and prepare our hearts that what we read tonight may stir us to greater obedience, love, and affection for you. Would you be our priority in all things? Would you humble us? Would you help us address the pride in our own hearts that we may be useful servants to you and that we may give you the glory and honor that you deserve? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to Jonah chapter 2. That is um, after Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then Jonah. So it's near the end of the Old Testament. Jonah 2, verses 1 to 10. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to Yahweh, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from Yahweh. Then we finish. Then Yahweh commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. book of Jonah, in addition to being grouped in the 12 minor prophets, called minor because they're short in length, not because they're any less important, is also part of a group of prophets that were organized in the um, Babylonian Talmud, known as the, le the former and the latter prophets. Jonah's part of the <coughs> latter group, aka the latter prophets. The former prophets were grouping that provided a narrative of Israel's covenant failures, whereas the latter prophet's grouping was a commentary on the people's sin within the overall scope of God's redemptive plan. Let's take another uh, look at Jonah 2. If you notice, instead of being written in a paragraph uh, prose type of form, it's written in poetic narrative. This makes it similar to a psalm of thanksgiving, which makes sense as, as you read this, you see that Jonah is thanking God for delivering him not only from the ocean, but from death itself. Yet, while Jonah needs further deliverance, aka taken to shore, God has spared him his life by sending a fish to deliver him from drowning. It's at this point between the two deliverances that Jonah is praying out to God. One commentator provides characteristics of a psalm of thanksgiving, and, and in it he looks at a, 
an acronym called IMART, I-M-A-R-T. This stands for Introduction of Praise Addressed to God, Misery or Trouble Reported, the M, Appeal for Others to Praise God, A, Rescue Announced, R, and the Testimony or Vow of Praise, T. And we see this in many of David's uh, prayers or psalms of thanksgiving. What's interesting is Jonah's prayer here includes all of the elements except for the appeal for others to praise God. This combined with Jonah's lack of repentance reinforces the assessment that this is a selfish, self-righteous prayer. Now, tonight as we examine the prayer of Jonah, we're going to concentrate on verses 5 to 10. Not that verses 1 to 4 are, are not important, but in Hebrew poetry, we will often see uh, phrases or verses repeated. It's uh, an aspect of Hebrew poetry known as parallelism. And in this case, it's called synonymous parallelism, where he states something and then he restates it, the same thing, but in different words. And the purpose of this is to emphasize, in this case, emphasizing the power of God, the glory of God, the omnipotence of God, that God would hear his voice, that God would rescue him, and he's overjoyed and proclaiming his gratitude. So understanding that, I think it's okay for us to just focus on 5 to 10 because there are some interesting things that happen in verses 5 to 10 that, that really um, bring to mind the, the issue and the concern that we're talking about tonight. With that said, I want to point out our three main points of tonight's message. And I have them on the whiteboard behind me. The first is the self-righteousness of Jonah. And we're going to see this in verses uh, 5 through 10. The second main point is the humility of Christ. And we're going to look at a variety of verses that contrast Christ and his humility with Jonah and his self-righteousness. And thirdly, just like we did last week, I want to end our third main point as a question. Are you self-righteous or are you humble? And we'll explore that because I think that's something that we all struggle with is self-righteousness and pride. So with that said, let's start with the first main point, the self-righteousness of Jonah. We're in a fallen world. It's a dangerous world where rot and decay bombard us. We're constantly surrounded by those who profess to be good people. I'm a good person, one will say. Another will proclaim, I exclude negative people from my life because I am a positive person. What they're saying in so many words is, I'm a good person. Many people contribute to charity or volunteer. And these are good things to make the world a better place and to let the world see what a remarkably good person they are. These effects do in fact have a positive benefit on society, but, and this is also good behavior, but does it really expose their heart, their motives, what's driving them? We can't peer into the heart of man, and that's probably a very good thing. Only God knows what's in the heart. You recall in Samuel when the prophet Samuel was instructed by God to go talk to and to go anoint a new king, God's chosen king, from among the sons of Jesse. Samuel went to um, the region where Jesse lived near Bethlehem and looked at his sons, and Samuel saw handsome sons, and God told him, it's not what is on the outside that matters, but what's in the heart. And that was what led Samuel to anoint David as king. Now, if we can't visibly see what's in other people's heart, we should be able to see what's in our heart, right? But the heart is deceitful, and we know that that we are really good at lying to ourselves. Paul exhorts the Corinthians then to examine themselves. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, 
Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Now, there are many ways that we can uh, examine ourselves. You go downtown to a doctor, as many of us uh, senior saints are often accustomed to doing. The doctor has many tests for us. Um, draw this blood. Let's poke here. Let's prod here. Let's draw this. Let's check that. Because the doctor is diagnosing what might be the cause of an ailment. All right? From a spiritual perspective, we don't have a blood test that we can take. But we do have a heart test. And one helpful diagno diagnostic tool in examining our heart is to look closely at our prayer life. We can examine our prayers. What you pray for can reveal the state of your heart and help you examine yourself. In the second chapter of Jonah, we see both good and bad in Jonah's prayer. But in looking at his prayer, we see that it is displeasing because of the sinful self-righteousness buried in all the good. This is confirmed when we see God's response. When we look at self-righteousness, there are three sub-points that I want to address as we're going through this. The first sub-point of Jonah's self-righteousness is his self-justification. His self-justification. And we're accustomed to this. Um, you get caught doing something. Oh, well, you know, I w there's a good reason I was doing this thing I shouldn't have been doing. Oh, oh, do tell. I, I want to hear it. Um, we're really good at self-justifying our, our, our misdeeds. And generally when we self-justify, we will often start with a series of truths. And the reason that we profess all these truths before we veer off into error is either we want to justify our error, so we profess these truths, then, then, then we add the erroneous thing as though... Um, 20 rights overcome the one wrong. Or, more often, we tell all these truths to numb our conscience against sin so that we don't feel as bad about not confessing that sin or repenting of it. In this case, Jonah professed the greatness of God in verses 5 to 7 before heading off into error in verses 8 to 9. We'll talk about that. In verses 5 to 7, and, and likewise in the verses before 1 to 4, Jonah praises God for his omnipotence, his omnipresence, and his omniscience. This is good and right to do, and we should do this all the time. We read of this in verses 5 to 7, so let's look at verse 5, and what we'll do is we'll break down each verse. Because I want to um, highlight some of the Hebrew that helps give us greater clarity on, on what these verses contain. In verse 5 we read, Water encompassed me to the point of depth. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Verse 5 of the prayer acknowledges Jonah was near death. The Hebrew verbs for encompassed me and engulfed me work together to suggest life-threatening duress. We see this same usage in Psalm 18, verse 5, where David praises Yahweh for saving him from death at the hands of King Saul, who is pursuing him through the wilderness with murderous intent. David writes, The cords of Sheol surround me. The snares of death confronted me. Returning to Jonah 2, verse 6, we read in Jonah's prayer, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, Yahweh my God. We see here in verse 6 that it rightly suggests that Jonah was about to be trapped forever in death. Death is a one-way trip. And Yahweh brought his life up from the pit. This language or the term pit is used throughout the Old Testament to symbolize or represent the grave. When you see him praising God from rescuing him from death, you brought me out of the pit. Again, going back to David, David also uses this term a number of times in the Psalms. He writes in Psalm 21, 28 verse 1, 
To you, O Yahweh, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down into the pit. David writes in Psalm 30, verse 3, O Yahweh, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down into the pit. So it's becoming very clear that, that Jonah was in deep distress, that he was drowning, that he was on the verge of death, that God raised him and protected him and, and rescued him from death. And then Jonah continues in verse 7. And the English seems pretty, pretty tame. But in the Hebrew, it has a much more ominous tone. Jonah continues in verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now we hear fainting away. You know, we, we think of, you know, old-timey black and white movies where somebody swoons, and then the, the hero captures her. The, the idea of fainting away in the Hebrew, the language that they use, is, is far more ominous in, in its connotation. The Hebrew verb in tense is, is translated as to feel weak. And it's not just because it's so hot outside, you didn't drink enough water, or you didn't get enough lunch, or you were just working really hard and you feel weak. Um, let's look at its use in Lamentations, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, where the author is addressing God's anger against Israel. This term in the Hebrew is used to represent one's life ebbing away. We read in Lamentations, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? And they faint like a wounded man in the street of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. So it's not just fainting away. It's envisioning um, Jerusalem under siege and men dying in their mother's lap, bleeding out. This is the same connotation of Jonah, that this is no mere, oh, I'm fainting, but he is that close to death. What's interesting and encouraging is that as Jonah was slipping into death, his thoughts were of God. And that's good. He remembered Yahweh. And there's a point I want to make to this before we go on to the next verse, because I think it's an important one. We saw in chapter 1 how disobedient Jonah was to God. Completely disobedient. He flees from God, disobeys God, has no use for God, but when he's on the verge of death, who does he cry out to? Yeah, don't we fit into that category a lot of times in our own lives? From his own personal experience, Jonah knows that God is gracious. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God is long-suffering. That's one of the reasons he doesn't want to preach to the hated Assyrians. Because the Assyrians are not only Gentiles, but they're the Gentiles of the worst kind. And we talked about some of the horrors that the Assyrian army did to their enemies last week. That said, even though... He is willing to accept God's gracious mercy and loving kindness when it's directed at him. He is unwilling to allow God to show that same mercy to the Ninevites. Jonah not only thinks himself above the Ninevites, but also he thinks he's far above the very sailors who fought valiantly to save his life and only after a prayer to God reluctantly cast him into the sea. Whereas we see the self-righteousness involves significant self-justification, oftentimes with proclamations of truth before we slip into an error, our second sub-point we see in verses 8 to 9 shows the error that Jonah held to. And our second sub-point is that self-righteousness also comes with a heavy dose of self-deception. Self-deception. We wrongly conclude day to day in our normal lives that we have more power than we do. We wrongly believe in our day to day lives that we have far more control over our lives than we do. What's worse is 
we always believe the lie that we are holier and less sinful than we truly are. I am absolutely convinced through Scripture that it is a great mercy of God that we don't see exactly how truly sinful we are. And I'm grateful for that. So with this in mind, let's read verses 8 to 9, where Jonah prays, Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from Yahweh. That doesn't sound self-deceptive. doesn't even sound self-righteous. It sounds like a good prayer. When you look at it, okay, I think we all agree that those that worship idols are unfaithful, whether that idol is money, fame, or a statue. It's reasonable considering God's rescue that Jonah plans to worship God with thanksgiving and professes to make good his vows. How often have you been in a position where something went wrong? Oh Lord, if only this car would start. Oh Lord, if only you would get me to that next exit before I fall asleep driving on an overnight trip. We've all done that. And we've all made promises to God. God, if only just, if only just, I will fill in the blank. So this is not unusual. And I would argue it's not even wrong to to beg God for help, okay? I would say that it's probably wrong if if you think you're somehow going to um, coerce God. God, you know, if you uh, get me from here to there, I'll throw another 10 bucks in the collection plate. Oh, good, because God needed that 10 bucks. Um, That's not it at all. Furthermore, the last sentence that we just addressed is absolute glorious truth and this is actually this the end of of verse 9 is the high point the pinnacle the summit of the entire book of Jonah and that is salvation is from Yahweh he is the reason that we have hope he is the reason that we have joy he is the reason that we are made right with God that we are adopted as sons and daughters that we will live with him in eternity, in the new earth. God and God alone is the source of our salvation. Okay, and we do want to revisit this because this is very important, but let's get back to Jonah and dissect his self-deception. As with all deception, the most pernicious lies always start with truth. We can look at the very first lie presented in Scripture, Genesis 3, verse 1, when the serpent asked Eve, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Okay, that's a twisting of the truth. Because if we go back to the previous chapter, Genesis 2, verse 17, Yahweh's command to Adam was this. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Lies always introduce doubt. They twist truth. They open the door for pride. Self-deception ultimately leads to our third sub-point, self-engrandizement, or known as self-worship. We steal the glory that belongs only to God, and in doing so, we worship ourselves. So let's return to Jonah. How does this apply to him? Well, after proclaiming the mercy and omnipotence of God, he then turns and starts denouncing those who worship idols. Let's return to the text, verse 8. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. So at the end of the previous verse, Jonah is proclaiming the glory of God. After doing so, he attacks pagan idolaters. Why? He sees himself as better than the pagans. Jonah begins his prayer telling God how good and faithful he is. 
He praises God for his omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. He proclaims the goodness and mercy of God after sending seven verses, building himself up as the hero of his story by praising and glorifying the all-powerful Yahweh, creator and sustainer of all things for saving him, Jonah then turns to attack the pagans. Not just any pagan idolaters. When pondering who Jonah might be referring to, the Hebrew used strongly suggests Jesus, or sorry, Jonah, Jonah is maligning none other than the sailors who cried out to their gods during the storm and fought vigorously to save Jonah's life. Verse 9 provides additional context. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. When you look at the Hebrew of Jonah's promise professing he will make offerings to you and he will fulfill vows to you after being delivered by an act of divine mercy, here's the irony. The very men he disparages in verse 8 were also delivered by an act of divine mercy from the storm. You remember back in chapter 1 when the sailors threw Jonah overboard God immediately and miraculously stopped the storm. What did the sailors do? They thank God. Jonah didn't see any of this. Jonah didn't see the storm calming. Why? He was busy drowning as he was sinking into the ocean. He had no idea what was happening on the surface. He didn't see the storm abate. He did not see the sailors worshiping and offering sacrifices to Yahweh. Where Jonah is busy praying against these pagans, these pagans have already honored Yahweh by giving him praise and offering vows and sacrifices. And the exact words that Jonah uses in Hebrew are the very words used to describe what the pagan sailors had already done. God in his mercy had given these sailors an understanding of who he was through his miraculous power. And these pagan sailors worshipped the Lord. Not just God, but actually Yahweh, the God of Jonah, who they knew was the cause of the storm. Just as Jonah presumes to be better than the wretched Ninevites, he presumes to be better than the pagan idolaters. Yet, in no instance do we see Jonah confess his sin to God. He's too busy being self-righteous. Yet, from the mouth of this rebellious, self-righteous prophet, a prophet who refuses to confess and beg forgiveness for his sin, comes this glorious confession at the end of verse 9. Salvation is from Yahweh. This is true. And it's glorious. Jonah was rescued physically by God. More importantly, he was rescued spiritually by God. Surely, God will be pleased by all of Jonah's heartfelt and glorious praise throughout this prayer, right? Verses 1 through 9. Glory, praise, glory, praise, glory, praise. And then we read verse 10. Then Yahweh commanded the fish... And it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Shocking. Wow. All that praise, all that thanksgiving, <clears throat> all that profession of worship, and the proclamation of glorious truth. And God directs the fish to vomit Jonah up onto the beach like a cat coughing up a hairball. Wow. What's amazing is that, as we pointed out last week, the fish does exactly what God commands it to do, exactly when God commands it to do it. Not so much with his rebellious prophet. Now let's look at the language here. It's very instructive. The fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. The fish didn't just open his mouth and let Jonah crawl out. It vomited him up. When you look at the tense of this particular Hebrew verb used for vomit, it translates as to vomit something up what has been eaten. 
And this particular tense of the Hebrew verb only shows up six times in the Old Testament. And I'd like to share the meaning of each one in the context so you can have a better appreciation of what God means when this fish vomits Jonah up. I will tell you, if you haven't guessed already, it has a profoundly negative meaning. Profoundly. In response to consuming excess food, Proverbs 23, verse 8, you will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and you will waste compliments. Proverbs 25, verse 16, have you found honey? Eat only what you need that you will not have it in excess and vomit it. Those who gather excess wealth through evil means. Wealth is fine. We're stewards of what God has provided us, whether much or whether little. But if you gather wealth through evil, unrighteous means, we read in Job 20, verse 15, he swallows riches but vomits them up. Or God's judgment on those who passionately pursue immorality, citing the result of the Canaanites' nonstop depravity in Leviticus 18, verse 25. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants, like projectile vomiting. Or God's warning to the Israelites not to model the Canaanite behavior after the wicked Canaanites, lest they suffer the same fate. In Leviticus 18.28, the Lord says, so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. And another warning to Israel from God, exhorting them to obey him in Leviticus 20, verse 22. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. We all know how this ends. You guys have read the Old Testament. First, Assyria conquers Israel, starting approximately in 740 B.C. under King Pul. We see that in Chronicles 5, verse 26. And remarkably, Judah is watching this. Judah is watching Assyria capture Israel. Judah is watching the Israelites being taken off into captivity. Yet they ignore God's warnings. The example right in front of them, they continue in their sin. Second Chronicles 36, 17 in the book of Lamentations records Nebuchadnezzar leading the Chaldean army to destroy Jerusalem and the temple witnessed by none other than the prophet Jeremiah in 586 BC. I think it's fair to say that the language that the Lord uses in this text of the fish vomiting Jonah up onto the beach represents God's extreme displeasure though he prayed and he professed from the belly of the fish everything that was theologically correct. Not a speck of heresy in any of it. Everything he said was theologically right. But his motivation was displeasing to God. That's the point. So much so that God expressed his displeasure by having the fish vomit him up on the beach. Why? Because it was self-righteous. There's only one who's righteous, wholly acceptable to God, and whose prayers perfectly demonstrate his righteousness, and that's Jesus Christ. Not only was Jesus righteous, but he was humble. And this is our second main point, the humility of Christ. It's important for us when we're talking about the humility of Christ to understand who Jesus is. And we have to go to John 1, verse 1, to see unquestionably the importance of understanding this. Jesus is God. We read, starting with verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being 
that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus the Son, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, created the universe from nothing. The one with infinite power, wisdom, and knowledge out of infinite goodness, mercy, and grace emptied himself of much of his power that was rightfully his in order to take on human flesh to redeem a people unto himself. And we see this in John 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He did not change from God to man, but rather he took on flesh, which required him to humble himself and temporarily set aside much of his power and his glory to accomplish the task he set out to do. Jesus was not self-justifying, but the justifier. Jesus obeyed God perfectly. This perfect obedience was necessary for Jesus to be the spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice. Christ's death on the cross paid the sin debt for all of those who would repent of their sin and come to believe in Christ alone, not in anything they might do because they are completely justified in Christ. Christ, as the light and life of the world, brought truth and salvation. Which brings us to our second sub-point. Jesus was not self-deceiving. He cannot be. He cannot lie to himself or anyone else. He is truth itself. That was what was meant in John 1, 5 when we read, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. When, mind's, when man's mind is shrouded in sin, he cannot discern the truth. It makes no sense. Jesus brought the good news of the gospel in a way the religious leaders of his day could not comprehend. Though predicted throughout the Old Testament, they refused to believe that their Messiah would come humbly in the form of a servant who would teach, exemplify, and demonstrate the validity of his claims through miracles. His claim in John 14, 6 is this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ is the Messiah. He is righteous. He's worthy of all glory and praise but he humbled himself. We see this attitude in his prayers. Jesus didn't only pray when he was in trouble. Jesus made fellowship with his Father a priority. We read in Mark 1, verse 35. In the early morning when it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. In Luke 5, verse 16, Jesus himself would often slip off to the wilderness and pray. He would pray for others, Matthew 19, 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Jesus prayed for himself, his disciples, and all who would come to faith and worship him, including us believers in the high priestly prayer found in John 17, verses 1 to 12. He also taught others to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, not by mindless repetition or to be seen and admired by men, but Jesus instructed them, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us not our trespasses as we have forgiven our trespassers and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. It's, a, it's not something to just blindly recite over and over, but it reminds us to first and foremost give glory to God. Secondly, acknowledge that what he wills will come to pass. Be mindful that God will give us provision and ask for forgiveness for your sins always, constantly. Returning to Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2, we see that Jonah was busy elevating himself self-righteously and God humbled him. When we read the second chapter of Jonah, we can see how readily we can adopt the self-righteous behavior and attitude. Say and do all the right things while glorifying ourselves. 
Please don't. Be like Christ. How? Be humble. Philippians 2 shows us how. You read in Philippians 2, starting with verse 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How did God respond to Jesus? Far differently than God responded to Jonah. Jonah was vomited up on the beach by a fish. Christ was raised to sit at the right hand of the Father to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. With mind to Jonah's self-righteousness and Jesus' humility, this brings us to our third main point, and that is this. In examining yourself, are you self-righteous or humble? We all would like to think that we're humble, but in looking at our own heart, it's imperative that we examine our prayer life. Our prayer life is a very reliable indicator of the state of where we're at in our faith. So I've got a number of questions that may help you self-diagnose the state of your heart according with Scripture. First, what is the priority of prayer in your life? Are you like Jonah, only turning to the Lord when facing a significant crisis? Or are you like Jesus, who prays regularly because he's building on a close relationship with his father. Who is the hero of your story? You or Christ? Jonah exalted himself. Jesus exalted the father. Who do you pray for? Jonah prayed for himself. Jesus prayed for others as well as himself. What do you pray for? Do you pray for treasures on earth? Or do you pray for treasures in heaven? Do you confess your sins in prayer? Jonah completely omitted his sinfulness. Jesus was sinless and had no reason to confess sin. We, on the other hand, are completely sinful and must repent of our sins daily and come before the Father confessing and mourning over our sins, seeking forgiveness. So what are we to conclude from all of this? We see Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish was theologically sound. It had good content. But sadly, his motives were sinful and self-righteous. It's pretty safe to say that as a chosen prophet of God, many other of his prayers in his life were God-pleasing. Yet in this one instance, and isn't that the way it is, the one instance where the prayers recorded it reflected a self-righteous heart. Despite this, we see God's mercy and long-suffering. Rather than giving Jonah what he deserved for his presumption, God chose mercy and gave Jonah a second chance to preach a warning to Nineveh. God shows that same mercy to us. How often do we disobey like Jonah? How often do we presume on God's loving kindness and approach him with self-righteousness in our hearts. We see in the pages of Scripture how the heroes of faith that we see in Hebrews 11 are sinful men and women just as we are. Yet, 
as we see God's response to Jonah's prayer with disapproval, he also demonstrates his grace and mercy in allowing Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh. The book of Jonah reminds us that God is patient, God is merciful, God is long-suffering, abounds in grace and loving kindness. If you are yet outside the kingdom, no amount of good works are going to earn you God's love or forgiveness. We already owe God perfect, lifelong obedience because that's his perfect standard. Only Jesus met that standard. He lived the perfect life, suffered and died on the cross, bearing the full measure of God's wrath against sin, then rose on the third day, demonstrating that sin debt was paid in full for those who would believe in him. Outside of Christ, you will be called to account by God. You will be required to pay your sin debt against an infinitely good God in full with an infinite amount of suffering in hell. Repent of your sin, confess it to God, seek his forgiveness, and find comfort in that forgiveness that results in a restored relationship with our Creator. For those of us who have come to faith, this is profound encouragement to continue in our pursuit of holiness. We will continue to battle sin until Christ brings us home or returns in glory. Don't give up the fight. Don't be discouraged. God is quick to forgive the broken heart. Turn from your sin, cry out to him, and know that he is quick to restore you. The path of sanctification is filled with trials that God allows in your life. To paraphrase Steve Lawson, the trials God permits you to go through are his quizzes to test your faith and obedience to him. If you fail the test, learn from it, confess, and be better for it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask that as we go forward in our week, in our month, in the rest of our life, that we would grow in our love for you and we would use the tools that you provide us in Scripture to examine our hearts. Would you help us see the sin that resides in the dark corners of our heart, that unconfessed sin or that cherished sin that we struggle with? Would you help us root it out? Would you help us examine our prayers to see where we might be falling short, that you would help us grow, that you would help us confess, and that you would make us to draw closer to the image of your Son throughout the rest of our life until you come in glory and we see your face and we get to spend eternity in your presence, worshiping and honoring you with the brothers and sisters. We thank you for this marvelous, wonderful gift. We, we thank you for your sacrifice, your love, and all the blessings you bestow on us in this life and the next. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.